talk about an interesting topic. Every year I, I try to put what I think to me is the most interesting topic to discuss on the last day, and that kind of keeps people coming. So today, marriage. Now, in talking about marriage, you know, I'll be, I'll, a lot of times I just try to, it's kind of my nature, I try to present almost as a historian, theologian. But, you know, sometimes what theologians and historians say, even though it may be factually accurate concerning history, some people get irritated by it. Particularly with marriage, it's a very personal subject. Uh, and as you know, most of our, almost all, all, I can say all now, all of our mainline Protestant denominations in the United States and in Europe uh, have split, have splintered over what appears to be the, um, uh, the spark of the defining of marriage. Now, um, what I like to say to people, and I hope this week's made it clear, and I hope what I talk about this morning makes it clear, it's not so much over marriage. That's not the issue as much in the Christian community as the broader issues such as who gets to define marriage? Who gets to define marriage for you? Um, that's the bigger issue because what I've been trying to do all week is to help you Think about how you think about things Christianly. Now, if you choose not to think about things Christianly, that's fine. You can be Buddhist. If you're Buddhist, think about things from a Buddhist perspective. But if you want to be, profess to be a Christ follower, I hope it's an issue with you that you want to learn to think about things Christianly. And we have 2,000 years of history of trying to do this. You know, how do we come to our decisions on, for instance, how we define marriage. Now, um, you don't have to define marriage like the, con- the consensus bulk of the Christian community has defined marriage for 2,000 years. That's your freedom. Um, people define marriage, particularly as we get more and more into this present age, people define marriage in many different ways, and they certainly have that right. Um, for some people, it's just a spiritual friendship. For some people, it's a financial consideration. Um, people have the right to define anything you want to define the way you want to define it. Now, as someone who tries to be faithful in following Jesus Christ, I have to yield my wants and desires sometimes. And I have to even yield my rights. You know, you have the right to determine how you use your financial resources. Kind of. As a Christian, I believe in tithing, so I've relinquished some of my right concerning how I use my financial resources. And that was a decision, Tammy was a Christian, we married, that was a decision we made early on. I relinquished my right uh, regarding to how I use my financial resources. So part of being a Christ follower means you, you may have to relinquish some rights to be a Christ follower. Um, in regards to the culture in which you find yourself. But you certainly have the right to define marriage the way you want to. You have the right to define politics the way you want to. You have the right to determine how you use your financial resources the way you want to. That list goes on, you know, according to the Declaration of Independence. You have the um, right to the pursuit of happiness. And you can define that however you want to. And we need to be gracious and gentle with each other. 
Um, one of the things that we've lost in the contemporary age is how to be unconditionally kind to everyone. And as a Christ follower, again, that's a poor value. I, I try to be unconditionally kind to everyone, especially to those people with whom I disagree. Because people notice that. People notice, you know, if you're unconditionally kind to someone with whom you disagree. Uh, everything I've spoken about this week, yeah, everything I've spoken about this week, in particular this subject, I've got people that I love deeply and desperately in my family, very close to me, who define things differently than I do. And we, a long time ago, agreed to disagree. We show unconditional kindness to each other. We show unconditional love. I prefer saying unconditional kindness because if you say unconditional love, love can be abstract. Love in this culture becomes a feeling. It's not in the Christian faith. Love is something you choose to do. And that's why, you know, when I, when I talk about unconditional love, what I'm really talking about is unconditional kindness, how you treat the people around us. You know, some of the people that I'm very, very close to in my life who um, we define a lot of things very differently, if I were to all of a sudden shift over to some of their views, it would shock them to death because they know I'm coming at it from a different perspective. Some of the people that I love deeply and desperately, they know I'm coming at it from a Christian worldview. And I'm not making a judgmental statement on anybody else, but I'm coming, I'm trying to come at it from a Christian worldview. And I've got people that I love desperately. That's not their worldview. They, they, they have a, well, one of the prevailing worldviews in our culture today is that the highest good is personal freedom. The highest good is personal autonomy. The highest good is self-determination. You know, that's the culture in which we live. That's a big part of postmodernism. I hope you'll Google that after I've mentioned it so much this week. Well, if that's your worldview, that's your worldview, and you have the right to that. Obviously, that worldview, you know, the, the, you know making personal autonomy, making self-determination, making personal freedom, sometimes that even becomes personal pleasure and comfort. Making that the highest good, certainly not the Christian worldview. You know, we have a suffering Savior at the center of our faith who says maybe that's the highest good. Well, our culture, that's a hard sell, our culture. So whatever your worldview is, go for it. I'll support you in it, and I'll love you in whatever decisions you come to. I just want to encourage moderns to be reflective about how they're making their decisions. Be, be, be strong enough to be countercultural. Don't let the winds of culture just sweep you up, and the next thing you know, you, you sound more more like them than they do. You know, if that's what you choose, go for it. Um, we need to learn again, particularly in the Christian community, particularly as we are in a post-Christian culture, we're more like the book of Acts than we were your grandfather and grandmother's age in, in the West. We're more like the book of Acts where we're in a world, people have different moralities, different gods, different philosophies, and the book of Acts sort of can teach us how to exist in that world. Um, you, know, we, you know, I'm always amazed at Christians who are shocked when the world around them doesn't support their values. You know, you've heard of Jesus. Jesus said, be this way. Jesus said, the world around you, even when they appear to support your values, they really don't. But, you know, I, I've never understood Christians who just can't understand that the world around them doesn't support their values. 
You know, it was certainly that way in Jesus' day, the New Testament period, the book of Acts, throughout most of our history. We've actually thrived as a movement when we understood that we differed from the culture around us. We are weakest when we don't have a strong division between us and them. Now, we love them unconditionally. We show them unconditional kindness. But we've always had a strong uh, division between we, we see things differently. We see things differently, um, particularly in regards to marriage. Part of postmodernism is, um, you know, it's, it's, and our cultures eat up with it today. Uh, and a lot of people have philosophically embraced what's called postmodernism. I've studied with some people who have philosophically embraced postmodernism. But some of the, if you go Google postmodernism, um, it's, it ends up being a very skeptical, cynical, doubtful worldview. You ever notice how people in our culture will doubt everything except their doubts? <laughs> they will be skeptical about everything except their skepticism. Um, postmodernism just creates that kind of culture where you're skeptical and you're doubtful about everything. And part of the reason is we have a different epistemology. Now, if you win money on Jeopardy with that one, I want part of it. Epistemology is an important issue for Christians and the rest of us. Epistemology is just simply the study, the study of how you know. Which, if you pay attention to epistemology and the study of how you know, you start off with the question, can you know? I, I studied for a while with a, a person. He was a professor of patristics, which means early church history, the age of the church fathers. He was a, stud, he was a, a Ph.D. in patristics, um, fairly, fairly recent Ph.D. Postmodernism wasn't as um, in vogue and wasn't as much a fad when I was being trained. But this particular person I stayed with who I have great high regard for, I studied with him. Uh, he was a uh, church historian from a postmodernist point of view. Now, what always fascinated me as a postmodernist, because their epistemology basically says you may not be able to know anything. And that becomes real problematic for historians or people who depend on a text. Like, for instance, this person I studied with, now, again, he's a church historian, and all we have is written evidence from that period to help us know what they thought, what they did, what they believed. But as a postmodern, he held the conviction, and this is typical today, that when you have a document in front of you, whatever that document is, the best you can do probably is you make and figure out what the author of that document meant. In other words, you really can't say that document means is connected to truth. You, know, you can't say it's true or it's not true. The best you can say is that you, you might can figure out what the person who wrote that meant. And then you end up with stuff like, well, of course the winners always write the history. So the winners always write everything. Every, all of us write our stuff from our perspective. So according to postmodernism, you know, everything's so written from everybody's individual perspective, it may not even have a basis in reality. Now, I did used to talk to my friend, Dr. Schott, how do you do church? How do you do history when you can't trust a document? You know, you have to evaluate, is this a 50% trustworthy document? Is this possibly true? Is it probably true? Is it certainly true? But from a historical perspective, we have to be able to say, yeah, I think it's, it, this tells me something other than just 
what St. Augustine had for dinner last night and what mood he's in and who he doesn't like. or who There may be some connection with reality. Well, postmodernism is very skeptical. Postmodernism says we really can't know anything about except what people want you to know. And that's why, particularly in a postmodern world, one of the things that we've lived with now for a um, couple of generations, postmodernists, postmodernists, because truth and reality is all up for grabs, even the document's all up for grabs, they are notorious about redefining things. Very notorious about redefining things. And um, they have that right. They have that right. They may say, regardless of what you feel, that sky's pink. To me, that sky's pink. They have the right to that. So, um, yeah, if you're going to be a full-blown postmodernist, at least know you are. In this culture, it's just in the water. And most people don't even know the term. But they're being influenced by postmodernism. So um, that's why I want to start as I talk about Christian marriage. You know, and there's lots of other views of marriage out there. And I'll love, I'll be unconditionally kind to ever have other views of marriage and supportive. But if you were to ask me, what is the Christian view of marriage? What's been our consensus view for 2,000 years? Um, That's what I'm getting ready to present to you. You can agree with it, disagree with it. We've always had fringe movements. We, you know, you had the early Mormons who thought you could just marry as many as you wanted to because women couldn't go to Mormon heaven without a male taking them. So it was their evangelistic responsibility as men to marry as many women as possible. Well, of course, um, they had a revelation from God, uh, particularly when Utah wanted to become a state and there were federal laws. They had a revelation from God that all of a sudden we're not polygamous anymore. Well, they had a right to be polygamous until they ran afoul of federal laws. Um, so there's always been fringe movements in the Christian tradition that you can find about anything you want to find, which again, as a non-postmodernist, I can say those are fringe movements. As a postmodernist, that person might say, well, who knows who was right or wrong? You know, um, you know a good postmodernist way of viewing the Bible is to look at the Bible and say, well, everybody has their own interpretation, so who knows? That's postmodernism. If you've used that argument, you have been drinking at the wells of postmodernism. Now, certainly, there's things open to interpretation in the Bible. There's things that really aren't. By the way, John Wesley and St. Augustine said there's opinions and essentials. Those opinions are those things that are open to interpretation. Yeah, do you kneel for communion or sit, stand or sit for communion? Those are opinions. Baptism, a whole bunch of water or just a little bit of water, that's an opinion. We've always made the distinction between essentials and opinions. That's why we can have creeds. And with our creed, we're saying this, this stuff gets, borders, it gets close to, 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 to essentials. But a postmodernist would say you can never know. You just know what some certain people may be produced or want you to think. So um, I'm going to give you the consensus view of, uh, of Christian marriage. Um, when I went in the ministry 35 years ago, I never thought I'd live to see it become a controversial view. I didn't. Ten years ago, I didn't think I'd, I would see the pressure being brought, on, brought to bear in, inside of Christian communities to redefine marriage. Uh, when I was ordained, and we're still doing this, by the way, as a clergy, I took a vow to, 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 to believe in and to live my life based on 
faithfulness in marriage and celibacy in singleness. You know what that means, right? If I'm married, I'm faithful. If I'm not married, I'm celibate. That's, that's, that, I took that vow. And, you know, that's not an unusual... Nobody even blinked an eye when I was ordained in 1986. Because that's been the consensus view. Now we can't even determine what um, singleness is all about. Anyway, you know, I, I'm, I'm assuming and I'm hoping that many of you in the room have different views that have diverged from consensus Christian history. And that's fine. You have the right to that. And just uh, always reflect on how you make your choices in life. And, uh, you know, I have some bizarre views. Um, well, let me give you a funny one. I shouldn't say this, but I don't think there's any funeral drag. I mentioned my weird things I want for a funeral. I want to be buried, but I don't want to be embalmed. That's my personal preference. You can do what you want to. You know, my wife knows my reasons for that, but that's just me. Um, I don't hate people who are going to get embalmed. I don't hate people who are going to choose whatever. Um, again, we've got to relearn that in this culture. You know, we, we should expect disagreements. We should expect diversity. Um, and we sh- should know how to treat people who uh, disagree with us. But then we, we can also say this has been consensus Christianity. Um, yeah, I mean, that, uh, when, when Christianity took over the Roman Empire, cremations faded away. That's a historic fact. Do what you won't do with that fact, but I'm not postmodern, so I can say that was a fact. We might just have, we might, we haven't, might, we, maybe we haven't read the right people yet, but for the best we can tell from history, uh, I mean, that's just, you know, do with it what you want. You know, one of those, one of those personality types that does irritate me, besides people who make all their decisions on their gut feelings, is just simply people who are not reflective. You know, I probably overthink everything I do, and I wouldn't recommend that to anybody, but think about what you do. Maybe not overthink, but think about what you do. Don't just get swept along by the culture or your family or your friends, what your grandma told you or what your favorite politician told you. I mean, we're bombarded with people trying to influence us. Just, you know, pick and choose. But when you choose, you know, the, 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 your, the source of your influence, choose it courageously. And, and, and just understand some of the rest of us may choose our influence differently. So, um, obviously, back to the sheet now. Obviously, everyone can enjoy and should enjoy the benefits of marriage. If you determine by that you just mean companionship, spiritual companionship, <clears throat> fellowship, someone with whom to live your life, um, a, a means to a financial... And, I mean, everyone has the right to enjoy, enjoy the, the fruit of marriage. And that's why, you know, I think the state should allow for lots of different types of marriage. I haven't gotten over yet the fact the state is involved in church marriages. Wish they weren't. The least favorite thing I do, well, not really. One of the least favorite things I do as a pastor is fill out a marriage license for the sake of the state. I don't like being an agent of the state. It hasn't always been that way. Um, but, it, you know, state has gotten involved in marriage. So that takes you back to the question again, even though everybody can benefit from the fruit of marriage, who defines marriage? Who defines marriage for you? Who defines marriage for the Christian community? 
Well, obviously, I think for most people in this culture, and this is what brings about the battle, the state defines marriage. And you hear how I feel about the state. I, I hope the state never defines communion for me. Hope the state never defines baptism for me. But they, they try hard to define marriage for me. Um, I don't mind there being different definitions of marriage, different marriage practices out there. You know, I didn't lose. If I'd have been around in the 18, uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, I wouldn't have lost any sleep over what the Mormons were doing with marriage. I might have thought it was a little weird and a little complicated with multiple wives, but they had the right to that because the state, you know, they, they, they actually left the United States to do that, but then they decided to become a state when Utah came into the Union, messed up their theology. But the state, for most people, the state defines marriage. Even C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity and um, his friend J.R. Tolkien, who was a devout Roman Catholic, who wrote Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Rings, disagreed with him on this. But in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says there is and there should be and there should always be a difference between civil marriage and church marriage, Christian marriage. So just um, ask yourself, who defines marriage for you? Uh, in this culture, it's usually the state. It is not the first nor the last example of what many of us believe to be the state's overreach, the state usurping powers that really don't belong to the state. Um, I had an interesting um, experience recently. I did my first... I got involved in my first Georgia marriage. Um, you may or may not know every state can even uh, um, set law, laws for marriage. Some states are very different from other states. Um, in Georgia, and I really like this, it, it shocked me when, I, when I, I, was, I, was, I did premarital counseling for a couple that's getting married in Georgia. They're here, but they're getting married on a lake down there. And... Uh, Pastor colleague down there is doing the wedding. I'm doing premarital counseling up here. After we finished, they they gave me a document that I needed to sign and get notarized and give back to them. Well, you know, my first response again, well, here's the state again telling me what I've got to do. But I really liked it because what Georgia does, if you go through premarital counseling, according to the state of Georgia, if you go through at least six hours of premarital counseling, um, and your counselor, your therapist, or your clergy sign a document saying that you've... So that made me happy. They didn't mandate what it was. But it's just six hours worth of premarital counseling. And it did list some topics, and it was standard topics that are important for creating a marriage. But for the state of Georgia, when I got my document that I had to sign and notarize, if I did that, which I joyfully did, if I did that, I gave it back to the couple... And their marriage license went from costing $56 to costing $16. State of Georgia gives you $40 off your marriage license if you can show them that you've done something to prepare for marriage. I, I like that idea. I'm glad they didn't, glad didn't have to like send in notes as to how I did it to the state of Georgia. But they just want to know that a therapist, and I had to say what I was, a therapist, a clergy, a counselor, as long as the couple went through. So the state's very involved in marriage. And um, you may think that's good. I think it's open for debate. 
instead of the state being involved in marriage. Anyway, so let's talk about a historic definition of marriage. Because, again, it's gotten real, really redefined in our culture. We, we pretty much thought we knew to about 30 years ago what marriage was. You'd get that question right on Jeopardy. Now, if that question came up on Jeopardy, which I'm sure they wouldn't bring it up, because there'd be different definitions as to what marriage is. So look at the sheet I've given you. And again, part of what we're doing this week is I'm trying to get you to question, think about your worldview, question the lens with which you see the world around you, question the, um, the tools with which you make decisions. Anyway, I'm going to just give you some interesting facts about marriage. I've given you a quotation there by Warren Smith uh, from an essay he wrote on the significance of marriage. Um, I'm, I'm quoting Warren for several reasons. He's one of my favorite scholars. He teaches patristics. You can't call it that anymore. He teaches historical theology. you got to say patristics and matristics, um, even though there are probably no church mothers writing in the first three centuries. So we can't call it the age of the church fathers anymore. But Warren teaches church history at Duke Vinci School. He is... Um, uh, so he's a church historian. He's a professor of historical theology. Um, he's written, he's, he's an amazing scholar in so many ways. Uh, he happens to be one of my best friends in life. Uh, he is, I, I will say something about him that Walter Hooper said about C.S. Lewis. Warren is one of the most thoroughly converted people I, I've ever met when it comes to his faith. I mean, he, um, he, he's a thoroughly converted person. Christ has got hold of every area of his life. Not just the religious department of his life, but Christ has gotten hold of every area of his life. Anyway, he is a great scholar, and um, he, he, he wrote an essay entitled um, The Significance of Marriage, Marriage. He's just trying to present what the Christian community, our, our theologians, would have said for 2,000 years. And again, you, this is what's going to be interesting for you to hear is some of what I'm getting ready to say will be novel to you. And you probably wouldn't define marriage like the way I'm getting ready to define marriage. And um, that's, that's fine. But just let that kind of cause yourself to ask, maybe I'm more postmodern than I thought I was. Maybe I'm more a child of this age than I thought I was. Anyway, so now I'm going after sort of the consensus 2,000-year-old view of, um, of marriage in the Christian context. Anyway, here's a quotation from Warren, because it pretty much sums up. Um, he's influenced me, I've influenced him, but we both hope and pray we've been influenced by Scripture and Christian tradition. Here's his quotation. Within the context of our baptismal identity, let me just pause there a minute. Your primary identity is your baptismal identity. Who you are in Christ. If you're a Christian, that's your primary identity. Not what the state says about you, or your family says about you, or your friends says about, say about you, or your past says about you, or your failures say about you. Your primary identity regarding who you are should be rooted in your baptismal identity. Which, by the way, if you happen to be Roman Catholic or some Episcopalians, every time you walk in the sanctuary, you touch the baptismal water, right? Shake your head, yes. You're reaffirming your baptism. Your primary, uh, I, I knew a Methodist church out in uh, Kansas. They handed out, if you want to do this, I'll hand them out. They handed out little bitty cards um, that were put in plastic with a little hanger on them that people could put in their showers. And it was a little, it was a little writing telling people that every time you took a shower, remember your baptism. 
Because your primary identity should be in Christ, not in all these other things. So notice how Warren starts out. Within the context of our baptismal identity, being Christians, we see what the true end or goal or purpose of marriage is. Again, ask yourself before you read any of this, what's the purpose of marriage? And how did you come to that conclusion? First and foremost, marriage is a means to our sanctification. That's core Christian theology. It's Ephesians 5. It's Matthew 19. It's 2,000 years of Christian tradition. So the, the primary purpose of marriage, and by the way, the rest of your life, if you're a Christian, the primary purpose is sanctification. Now, that's a fancy word that we Methodists like, but all Christians use. It means your growth in holiness. It means your growth in Christ-likeness. That's why, we're, that's why, you know, that's why we're making this fascinating journey on this planet to give us opportunity to become more like Christ and to bear witness to Christ. So most people don't think of marriage being a, the primary purpose of marriage is their sanctification. Becoming more Christ-like, becoming more holy, uh, becoming more Christian. But that's, that's, we've always said that. I'm going to give you an ancient prayer in a minute from the church. Go on with Warren for a minute. If growing in holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, according to Hebrews 12, 14, is the goal of present life, and as Christians we say it is, marriage is a type of spiritual friendship in which we encourage and challenge each other in the way of holiness. Um, hope, hope in your marriages, that's a part of your marriage, if you're a married person. Um, the church is clear. Everybody's not called to marriage. You may be called to singleness. But whether you're called to singleness or called to marriage, the chief end of life is sanctification. Um, anyway, so uh, that's the goal of present life, uh, and that's the goal of marriage. Th- through learning to love one's spouse as Christ loved us, marriage cultivates the love of God and neighbor. Some of you have heard me say I'm an ISTJ on Myers-Briggs. Tammy's an ENFP. We are exact opposites, as radically opposite in personality types as we could become. We, are, we have helped each other sanctify each other, particularly on the days we didn't want to kill each other. We've sanctified each other, and we've helped each other grow in areas um, of, of Christ-likeness that uh, we would not have grown in if we hadn't been working on each other. But that, again, the purpose of life in general and the purpose of marriage is sanctification. Um, Living and laboring together, we discover that our pilgrimage through this life is not one that we complete by ourselves. And again, even if you're called to singleness, as a Christian, you're baptized into the body of Christ. If you are a third-going single person and you're a Christian, you're part of the body of Christ, you have brothers and sisters. We don't do this alone. That's the whole point of baptism, the body of Christ, the church being the people of God. Yeah, we're not meant to make this journey alone. So even if you're single, you have people helping you grow in Christ-likeness. If you're married, that spouse should be helping you grow in Christ-likeness. We need traveling companions to support and encourage us on our journey. For some, that companion is your spouse. As Augustine put it, um, we got a lot of good stuff from Augustine. I've told you some of the weird stuff we got from him. A lot of good stuff. As Augustine put it in his On the Good of Marriage, so, you know, he's writing about that in the 5th century. I mean, these are not new topics for us. On the Good of Marriage, he quote Augustine. God did not create man and woman. Augustine just said us. God did not create man and woman as strangers 
but made them from one of the same flesh. And we're going to go look at Genesis in a moment. Indicating the strength of the union between them. They were destined to be joined to one another as they walked together looking to the goal of their journey. Again, what's the goal of your journey? What's the goal of your marriage? Marriage is a form of spiritual friendship, but what distinguishes it from other spirit? And here's, here's, this may shock your world because things have changed since 1928. And I'll tell you what happened in 1928 in a moment. But this may shock your world. Marriage is a form of spiritual friendship, but what distinguishes it from other spiritual friendships is that the husband and wife are joined together with the purpose of bearing and raising children. We, no one ever questioned that. The first Christian body that ever questioned that was the Lambeth Church in the Church of England in 1919. That was yesterday, historically, 1919. Um, and then when the Book of Common Prayer was changed and uh, trans, redone in 1928, some of the emphasis on children was yanked out. I'll give you an example. Look at the prayer that comes next. This is the prayer from the pre-1928 Book of Common Prayer. Now, let me say a word about the Book of Common Prayer. That may be novelty to you. All Protestant worship in the West, in the English-speaking world, is based on the Book of Common Prayer, whether you acknowledge it or not. Now, the Book of Common Prayer that came out of the English Reformation, um, when Thomas Cranmer and his cohorts uh, created the Book of Common Prayer, uh, he used the ancient Sarum York rituals. So it's rooted before the English Protestant Reformation. So it's rooted in um, antiquity, but particularly for us Protestants who speak English, the Book of Common Prayer um, um, has formed our worship, has formed our theology. Now, um, there's lots of phrases that we use in English that we use because of the King James Version of the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, it, it has almost molded our language. A lot of writing about that. Now, in the Book of Common Prayer, um, and England has never changed theirs. Their Book of Common Prayer is still the 1662. The first Book of Common Prayer is 1549, in 1552. Um, and there were, it was tweaked and changed, a little language updated. Um, the Church of England, uh, they, they, their, newest, their newest edition is 1662. Now, American... Um, Episcopalians created the Book of Common Prayer after the Revolutionary War. Uh, American Episcopalians, because that's where you kind of find the Book of Common Prayer. We all use it. Our liturgies for Eucharist and baptism come straight out of the Book of Common Prayer. Updated language. Um, in America, a 1928 version was done. But if you go back to 1662, the, the original um, liturgies for marriage, you see that there was an emphasis on childbearing. Now, this prayer that I'm getting ready to show you is the prayer of blessing that followed the marriage. We still do a prayer of blessing. We still have the same order of service for marriage. Now, if, you know, compare those of you that heard me do weddings using our United Methodist liturgy, compare that prayer of blessing, which I love, with this one, you'll notice some differences. Um, so this... And even in, the 16, even in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, this is your basic prayer for blessing a marriage. And right after it comes two other prayers that are options if the bride happens to be beyond childbearing years. I mean, we've always had marriages that couldn't produce children for lots of reasons. 
So, you know, it's not that we're opposed to that or against that or Neanderthals, but the, the, in the Christian community, historically, usually said, this is our standard. Now, lots of other stuff happens sometimes. This is our standard. So the two people coming together for the purpose of sanctification, growth and holiness, and to have children that can be raised in that sanctified experience, that sanctified environment. That's the purpose of marriage. Here's the prayer that used to come at the end of all weddings among English, English-speaking Protestants. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, bless these servants of yours and sow the seed of eternal life in their hearts that whatsoever in your holy word they shall profitably learn, they may surely fulfill the same. Look, O Lord, mercifully upon them from heaven and bless them. And as you did send your blessing upon Abraham and Sarah, now the culture then knew what the blessing was that was sent upon Abraham and Sarah. The blessing that made um, um, Sarah laugh. What was the blessing? His name was Isaac. She, they were blessed with a child late, late, late in life. So, yeah, in 1552, we didn't have to explain that to Christians. As you did send your blessing upon Abraham and Sarah to their great comfort. Um, everybody doesn't agree children are a great comfort, but the church thinks they are. We're sort of pro-children. To their great comfort, so surely send your blessing upon these servants of yours that they, obeying your will and always being safely under your protection, may abide in your love to the end of their lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So this was the standard prayer blessing. There were two others, if you were marrying a couple, that were beyond childbearing years. And, you know, that, that was just the standard. You know, two people coming together for the purpose of sanctification um, and, and having children which can be created in a sanctified environment. And that is, if you notice in the Bible, and that's what we're going to turn to now, if you notice in the Bible, the creation of marriage comes before the creation of the state. The creation of marriage comes before the creation of the church, right? Shake your head yes to both of those. Because the conviction has been marriage predates those things, and marriage is defined by God. Marriage is God's purpose, and the state is built on marriage. You know, um, so goes um, so goes the family, so goes the state. Actually, so goes the family, so goes the church, so goes the state. And um, yeah, I caught you saying on that for a little while. But anyway, um, look at let's look at some Bible texts now. You know, people love to say, "Well, Jesus never said anything about fill in the blank." Well, he was a good Jew. We know that. He was in synagogue. We know that. Some things were just common sense to him, but he did say more than people want to pay attention to. Look at Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to begin reading at verse 3. And you probably know this text. You may not have looked at it closely. We need to have more Bible studies on marriage. Okay, verse 3. And the Pharisees came to him and tested him. Yeah, they're just trying to trap Jesus um, by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, one thing you're going to learn here from Jesus is the Jewish faith always allowed for divorce. I know some people want to say, Well, the church allows for divorce, therefore anything goes. Well, the Jewish faith, and hence the Christian faith, is always allowed for divorce. 
Um, but anyway, they're trying to, not, not all branches of Judaism, they're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to see which side he's on concerning divorce. Anyway, so they're trying to trap him. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? But this is a good opportunity for Jesus to talk about marriage. And he's going to answer the question about divorce by going back to the, to the beginning. By going back to the original intent. By going back to God's will and purpose. So is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, have you not read? Yeah, he's insulting these religious leaders. Have you not read? Surely they have. They've read the book of Genesis. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore man, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Now, in the modern world, one flesh just is sort of a spooky, supernatural thing. It meant sex in the ancient world. It meant sex for what comes from sex. But the two shall become one. They're, they, they're connected in a very unique way. Um, so they shall become one flesh. Verse 6. So they're no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man or the state or popular opinion or whatever join asunder. That's how King James says it. Still in our marriage liturgy. Um, so, yeah. Verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Well, I just said it. In the law of Moses, divorce was an option. Throughout Christian history, divorce has been an option. And it doesn't mean that, you know, because divorce is an option that anything goes. But divorce has been an option. Now, you know, again, Jesus is trying to insult these religious leaders here by, you know, questioning whether or not they've read the book, whether they've read Genesis and the law of Moses. So Jesus here says, they said to him, why then does Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus' answer, and this is a good answer, as to why why. Moses allowed for divorce. Just give a certificate of divorce. You can send your wife away. Why, why divorce was allowed? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, Moses allowed for divorce. That wasn't God's perfect will and perfect intent. Um, you know, I don't think I've ever married a couple. And by the way, it would be illegal if I did. I've never married a couple who got married with the intent of being divorced. I've always assumed they really want to be married. Um, by the way, if you do marry a couple and the intent's being divorced, the state will grant you an annulment. Um, there are certain conditions for marriage, and one of them is you want to be married. You know, but I've never married a couple who their aim in life was to be divorced. Um, so what Jesus is saying here is divorce is, is allowed, was allowed in the law of Moses because of the hardness of heart. The modern way of saying that is because of human nature. Because of human nature, being what it is, we are sinful people in a sinful world with a sinful dog and a sinful mailman and a sinful milkman. And because of all that, we don't reach our perfect we don't reach the perfect will of God. So yeah, divorce is allowed. Divorce is allowed. Now, does that mean you change what you see as God's perfect will? Well, no, it doesn't mean you change what you see as God's perfect will. There may be a lot, a lot of allowances. Um, Jesus is going to talk about people who become eunuchs for the kingdom of God. If you don't know what a eunuch is, Google it this evening. 
So, yeah, you don't have to achieve God's perfect. You can become a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's what some of my Catholic friends who are priests will say they're not, not literally eunuchs, but they're sort of spiritual eunuchs for the kingdom of God. So divorce is allowed, according to Jesus, uh, because of human nature. That's just way way it is, because of human nature. Um, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And again, he went back to the beginning. When, when, you, when he was pushed to talk about marriage, he went back to Genesis. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, the word there is porneia. It's the word from which you get pornography. We get pornography. Porneia has to be defined because sexual immorality is um, a broad term. Jesus would have defined sexual immorality just like the early Christian community did in Acts 15, define sexual immorality, porneia, the way the Jewish faith did. So just throw that out there. Uh, but, you know, for, for the purpose of sexual immorality, um, the, uh, and you, you can marry another. You know, but if you just decide you want a blonde instead of a brunette, that doesn't work. Um, but if sexual immorality, I mean, it has to be a good reason for divorce. Um, well, they, 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 they continue, verse 10. The disciples said to him, even the disciples were really interested, interested in David and Jesus' uh, discussion of marriage. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone who receives this saying, but only to those to whom it is given. Because everybody's not called to marriage. Uh, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made, made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have, been made them, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Let the one who is able to receive this, to receive this, receive it. Uh, of course, eunuchs means castration. I had a Sunday school teacher one time who, um, she was a sweet lady, rather simple. They were, this was part of the Sunday school lesson. And the kids asked what it meant to be a eunuch. And she really thought it meant to be unique for the kingdom of God. <laughs> If you're a eunuch, you are unique for the kingdom of God. But it means castration. Um, and of course, uh, you know, there, he, he, there's another place he continues to talk about, you know, um, look, let's say there's marriage and this woman marries over the course of her life several men. You recall this. M- marries several men. And um, who, in the resurrection of the dead, whose wife will she be? Remember them asking Jesus that one? And Jesus says, this always worries moderns, in heaven there'll be neither marriage nor giving in marriage, but will be like, not will be, but will be like the angels. So we'll be marriage in heaven. Now, um, we know what that meant for about the last 1,800 years until the last 100 or so years. You know, if you say, well, why won't there be marriage like we understand in heaven? Well, your grandparents understood that. You don't need to procreate in heaven. That's why there's no marriage in heaven. You don't need to procreate. But if you just totally eradicated marriage from procreation, yeah, then you try to, you're going to have to work on figuring out what Jesus means by that. You know, a lot of us, including me, you know, if I'm preaching it to the contemporary world, I'll say, well, you know, I won't love Tammy any less in heaven. I'll just love the rest of you more. 
in heaven because my love will be sanctified in heaven. So I, I don't lose Tammy, but I'll, I'll let the rest of you in on, on that love a little bit. Um, that's the way we sort of preach it to moderns to try to calm you down. Because, you know, we, you, you, hear, you hear Jesus say when there's no marriage in heaven, you hear him saying, well, I, is my husband not going to be there? Is my wife not going to be there? Well, he's not saying that. He, that's, that's not even in, entering his mind. Um, he's just saying there will not be marriage like we know marriage because the purpose of marriage is procreation. Go ask a good Jew what the purpose of marriage is. They love to procreate. Particularly in the state of Israel, they love to procreate. Uh, they're out procreating the Arabs in the state of Israel. And they have a good theology to, to cause that. Um, so that's Jesus talking about marriage. But the main thing I want you to notice is when he was questioned on marriage, he didn't do a, a, a poll of the culture. When he was questioned on marriage, he went back to the book of Genesis. And said, here's where marriage is established. Here we see God's perfect will and death of the marriage. Now, I don't always meet God's perfect will on just about anything. I'm glad grace is there. But, you know, I, I do know what God's perfect will is. Um, anyway, the rest of these texts you can do for homework. Let me, tell, let me tell you what they say. Second Corinthians, because of this, the way I'm defining marriage, Second Corinthians is where Paul says... Don't be unequally yoked. If you're a believer, don't marry an unbeliever. Because if you marry an unbeliever, what's not going to happen? Mutual sanctification. So that's what Paul says in Second Corinthians. Hebrews 13 says, keep the marriage bed undefiled. And by keeping the marriage bed undefiled, by keeping the marriage bed what God intended it to be, uh, the verse goes on to say that will help you combat immorality, sexual immorality. Uh, Romans 1, 18 through 27. Since that was brought to bear last night, and we can wrap this up quickly, um, let, let me read this part. This was homework on both creation theology, on both, on several things. Now, Romans, first thing I want to point out, it, Romans, like all these other texts except Exodus, are New Testament. These are New Testament stuff. Not Old Testament law. These are New Testament things. Um, let me offer you this text, because this is where Paul's talking about general revelation. What every human being should know, even separated from special revelation. There's enough in nature and creation every human being should know this. So let's start in chapter 1, verse 18. Because in chapter 1, he's going to talk about how all Gentiles are guilty before God. Chapter 2, he's going to talk about how, how all Jews are guilty before God. In chapter 3, he's going to say, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then the rest of the book, guess what? He's going to talk about Jesus. How Jesus rectifies all this. But here's where he's painting a picture of human nature. Romans 1, 18 and following. And I, I'm just going to read it. You can do with it what you want. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul was not a postmodern. The truth. He knew there was something called the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. He's talking about general revelation. Nature. For, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him 
as God and did not give thanks to him. Uh, they, they know there's a creator. If there's a creator, you need to honor the creator. If there's a creator, you need to honor the creator as the lawgiver who overrides all other lawgivers. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. He's talking about the first century. It sounds a lot like the 21st century. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. It's dangerous when God finally lets you go and says to you, Thy will be done. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. He's talking to the Greco-Roman world here. Uh, And worshipped and served the creature rather than worshiping and serving the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up. Again, you want to you repent before God says to you one of these days, Thy will be done. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and, con- and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. I didn't write it. you got to do something with this if you're a Christian. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice, those who practice, those who build their lives on these things, those who practice such things deserve to die. And not only do them, but give, and not only do them, but give them approval to those who practice them. Um, yeah, I, I'm grateful he's going to get talking about Jesus, how Je- Jesus is going to remedy this. But he just painted you a picture of what human beings want. Again, this is not Old Testament, it's not the book of Leviticus, it's Paul in the New Testament. Uh, put this together with Jesus, who when you push Jesus, talk about marriage. Because again, it was common sense in that era. They were just even having the discussion because they were trying to trap Jesus. But he, 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 he played with them. So he, when he was forced to talk about marriage and, and human sexuality and all that package deal, he goes back to the beginning. He goes back to the book of Genesis. Um, yeah, I didn't write it. You do something with that. Um, now, I've got some colleagues um, who maybe they're smarter than I am. I've got some colleagues, and they say that all that Paul right there says about men burning with lust for men and you ignore the part about the women, but they say that, and you can, write, you can find this all over the internet and in books, they say that when Paul references men burning with lust for men, Paul only means pedophilia. I don't know how you find that in the text. Uh, and, by the way, it was clear in the ancient world. 
homosexual activity was rampant in the ancient world. In the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world, Jews and Christians were the different. But in the, in the prevailing Greco-Roman world, sexuality existed for one purpose. Pleasure. That's why, particularly in the Greek world and somewhat in the Roman world, women didn't matter much except for procreation. And sometimes you wanted an equal partner for your pleasure. That's just history. Do with it as you please. Um, but yeah, you know, the, what, the culture, the, the heavily sexualized culture that we have now is not the first time it's ever happened in history. Paul knew a heavily sexualized culture. Um, to lighten the topic a little bit, you know, I've taken groups to Greece several times, getting ready to do it again next year. We do a land trip through Greece. Um, first time I ever took a group of polite Methodists to Greece. And you see lots of statues. You see lots of statues in museums from the ancient world. I had one really polite, kind, southern, genteel Methodist lady finally come to me and say, Jeff, I am so tired looking at male genitals. <laughs> that was the Greco-Roman world. We're not the ones that invented this stuff. And there is... You know, so we can't just say, well, who knows what the Bible means? Who knows what 2,000 years of Christian tradition means? By the way, uh, the Exodus text I put there, Exodus 2014, if that doesn't ring a bell, that's from the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You better define adultery. Figure out how you define adultery, then don't do it. Um, by the way, there was one English Bible printed in the early days of the Reformation. They left the word not. And it's actually called the uh, Adulterer's Bible. <laughs> yeah, you, the word not, there is, thou shalt not commit adultery. Um, that's the Ten Commandments. That Ephesians text is one that people tend to notice where, where Paul says to wives to be submissive to your husbands. Then Paul says to husbands to love your wife as Christ loved the church, which is probably the harder, harder instruction. But what people forget, this can be homework too, Notice I've got you beginning reading at verse 21. Your Bible even might start a new paragraph at verse 22. The reason I want you to read at verse 21 and then read the rest is what Paul says in verse 21 is that we as Christians ought to always submit to each other. Because again, it's all about sanctification, growth, and holiness. And he goes straight from that verse to talking about wives submitting to husbands. So if you ask me, should wives should submit to husbands? I say, sure. But guess what? Husbands should submit to wives, too. Paul says it there. But, you know, a lot of people, and there's reasons, they start reading at verse 22, but you're more intelligent. Read at verse 20. Start at verse 21. And you'll see you're called to mutual submission. Then he says that. That's part of the body of Christ we're called to mutual submission. Because we're doing what we're doing for growth and holiness. Now, let me end with this to fascinate you and complicate your life a little bit.